May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Several years ago, while I was a, a doctoral student at Asbury Seminary, I was privileged to travel to uh, Seoul, South Korea. And while I was there, we were on this studying uh, trip and went and visited many churches and, and uh, were, were involved with, uh, with some of the most dynamic churches in the world and to see what they were doing, that sort of thing. But we found a little time to go sightseeing while we were there, which was a lot of fun. So we, we went near the, the, um, the U.S. Army base and uh, in Seoul, and there were all kinds of shops up and down the road, and you could buy all sorts of things for next to nothing. And I, I remember some men got tailored suits, you know, pure wool tailored suits for $200 a piece. Um, and they went there one day and were all fitted for them, came back the next day, were all finished. I mean, it was fantastic. We had interesting diners. Um, I remember one time in Korea, going to a Chinese restaurant, which I thought was a bit confusing. Uh, but anyway, we go there, and, um, and they, had, um, they had chopsticks that were stainless steel chopsticks. And they were completely round like a pencil. Now, you know stainless steel is kind of slippery in your hands. And so here I am trying to work these chop. I'm okay with a pair of wooden chopsticks, you know. But with stainless steel ones, not so much. Um, so bad was I, I suppose, that the waitress came by and slipped me a fork. Um, without saying a word, just slid it right in there. I thought to say to her, now you know this is an improvement. I mean, this is definitely a better... You, but I didn't. <laughs> we also went and, um, and visited uh, the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. Now, if you know that with the DMZ, this area, you know, this, um, I think 39th, is that what it is? 39th parallel between, uh, between South Korea and North Korea. There is like a painted line on the ground. I mean, this is what it is. It's a, it's a painted line. Here you are in South Korea. You step across this painted line. You're north, but nothing there between you. And so we drive up to go visit, and the first thing they do is they take you to this little building, and you're in a, in a bus, and you get off, and this Marine officer leads you into this building. In a building about this size, it's like a theater, and there was a, a movie screen, and they showed us a, a film about the history of the Korean War. The Korean War, they told us, uh, there's a ceasefire signed in 1953, but the war itself has never been over. This a declaration that we're no longer going to fight with one another, but there's not a peace accord, it's just a ceasefire. Which means at any moment, it could start back up. There's no treaty. And, and so he shows us this little film about it. And he says, you know, this is a very dangerous place that you're about to go to. And he shows us another film. This film was about Captain Boniface in 1970, what was it, 1976. And in 1976, Captain Boniface was part of the, uh, uh, the, the contingent of U.S. military up there at the DMZ, and there was this poplar tree that was growing out over top of the demarcation line between North and South Korea. And you couldn't see beyond it, even though the line was beyond it. So, so what would happen is the North Korean soldiers would come across under the cover of this tree and kidnap U.S. military personnel and United Nations personnel, and so something had to be done about this tree. Captain Boniface decided the tree needed to be cut down, took an axe, and led a, a few soldiers and went out there and started chopping the tree down. And some North Korean soldiers came down and met him there. Not to exchange insurance information or anything like that. Um, they came down and a fight broke out. And one of the North Korean soldiers grabbed the axe and swung it into the body of Captain Boniface. And he died right there. 
and the war almost started back up. So this Marine shows us this film, shows us the pictures, and then says, I have this indemnity form. I think that's what they call it, don't they have? They have this form. Sign this form that says that the U.S. does not guarantee your safety, and then I'll take you up there to see the demilitarized zone. As soon as you sign this form, get in the bus, and we'll take you up there. Of course, we're not guaranteeing anything. So we all signed the form, right? And uh, jumped on board the bus and rode up to the DMZ, about a five-minute ride up there, and we get out, and they take us out. And I'm here to the back of the room with North Korean soldiers with weapons facing us. And, of course, we're surrounded by, um, you know, South Korean and, and, and American troops as well facing them with the painted line on the ground separating the two of us. And we pull out our cameras and we're taking pictures like tourists at Disney World. I mean, we're, oh, look at this. Isn't this cool? You know, and, oh, there's guys up in that tower. Oh, look, they have machine guns, you know. And, and we're, we're just hanging out here at the DMZ. Now, I tell you this not because I want you to think that I'm brave, because I'm not. You can ask my sons. I can't even watch scary movies at home. I mean, I have a blanket over top of my head, and I cringe. I, I run out of the room. It's, it's awful what a coward I am. I, I did this. I went to this area because I knew that even though that Marine uh, officer told me that he wouldn't guarantee my safety, I knew deep down inside he would die to protect me. And not only him, the, the other guys who were up there would do the same. The, we, the, the, the group of tourists that were up there taking photos and looking out and pretending like we were, that we were protected because there were men and, and probably women who would die to save us. If something happened, well, a lot of people would probably go before we would. And I knew that. Isn't it nice to know that there are people who would give their lives to protect you? I mean, of all the things that you gave thanks for this past Thursday, hopefully that was among the list. That there are people who care enough about you and about the well-being of your family and, and friends and neighbors in this country that they would put their lives on the line to protect us. Thank God for these brave young men and women. But I couldn't help but to think how much better it would be if we lived in a world where we didn't have to worry about that. I mean... Could you imagine that the people of Seoul, Korea could go to bed tonight and not worry about a madman with, with nuclear weapons and missiles that could shoot them in seconds, could annihilate a city of millions of people in seconds? Wouldn't it be good if they could put their children to bed at night and not have to worry about that? Wouldn't it be delightful to get on a plane and not feel like you became very intimate with a TSA agent? I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah it would it, be great to get on, on a plane and not have to be searched or x-rayed or whatever. Imagine a world where you didn't have to have locks on your front door. Wouldn't that be nice? Have you ever been to parts of the world where they put bars on the windows of their homes because they're so afraid? I mean... Bars on windows. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where no one was out to do you harm? 
That's the world that Isaiah sees. Did you hear the Old Testament lesson this morning? As Isaiah looks into the future and he sees a world, he says something's going to happen. Let me, could you bear with me and let me reread? This lesson is short. It, it bears being read a second time. The word of the Lord, or the, excuse me, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. The, the word uh, in Hebrew, devar, the thing that Isaiah saw. The thing he saw in the future concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass, notice that future language, in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up among, above the hills. And all the, mountains shall fl- or all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Look at this. That he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. That sounds like a good place, doesn't it? Swords turned into plowshares. Spears into pruning hooks. Isaiah sees a time where this religious revival breaks out. Did you notice? The people want to go and they want to hear about the word of the Lord. Teach us the word of the Lord. Let us walk in His ways. Let us live in ways that are pleasing to God. Let us, let us be changed human beings. And he says, the mountain of the Lord, that is Mount Zion, the city on which uh, Jerusalem is built, or the mountain upon which the city of Jerusalem is built, shall be higher than the other mountains. Give Isaiah a little license here. He's, he's a preacher, not a geologist, right? He doesn't mean that the mountain is literally going to go shooting up into the sky. He doesn't mean that at all, does he? He says it's going to be preeminent. It's going to be the most prominent place in the world. We're out of Jerusalem. People will be so obsessed with the God of Israel that they'll come flowing to this mountain. Now you have to remember this. At the time that Isaiah writes this passage, Israel's a tiny little nation. In fact, Israel can't even be called Israel. It's Judah in the south. Just one little tribe left. They've already had a civil war where the northern part of the country has divided and left them. To speak about Israel at this time would be like to speak about the United States in 1863. It was hardly united. Right? And so Israel is divided. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And it's a very tough neighborhood. You think it's tough now? You should have been there in the 8th century B.C. Ruled by all sorts of, of nations that were, that were oppressive. The most oppressive, a nation called Assyria. What Assyria would do is that they would demand that the smaller nations pay them money not to invade them. It was sort of like people used to do to me with their, my lunch money when I was in school, you know. <laughs> yeah. hey, we will pay you not to invade us, not to come and destroy us. And the northern kingdom of Israel, the, the, the northern part, kind of banded together with some others and said, you know, we're not going to pay it anymore. Now, Assyria was brutal. How brutal, you ask? I'm glad you asked. They were the most brutal nation, perhaps, perhaps in the history of humankind. I think, having, having read about what Tiglath-Pileser III did in, in the 8th century B.C., I think he's more cruel than Idi Amin, than Adolf Hitler, than Joseph Stalin, perhaps combined. He was a brutal, brutal dictator. 
And here in this sort of environment, where he eventually invades the northern kingdom, destroys them, burns their cities, takes their people into exile, moves them out. In this environment, you have this preacher, Isaiah, who says, I see a time coming when there will be no more weapons of war. And I think the people around him might have said something like, Are you insane? Are you crazy? Don't you see what's happening around us? How can you possibly say this? Isaiah says there's going, to be, there's going to be a religious revival. And it's not going to be a revival just where people learn to go through the, the, the rote path of, of worship. Something Isaiah rails against in this prophecy. It's going to be heartfelt. There's going to be a real change of heart among the people of the world. They are going to be completely different. Superpowers are going to lay down their weapons. They're no longer going to be learning how to destroy people, but there's going to be an emphasis on how to sustain life. Farmers. Um, What do you call people who work in orchards? (laughs) Orchard workers. This is what they're going to be doing. There's going to be this, this attempt to sustain and make life better, and people have to be thinking enough of the Pollyanna Isaiah. You can't be serious. This isn't the world that we live in. This will never happen. It would have been like me saying at the DMZ that day, you know, there's going to come a day, if I told this Marine uh, uh, officer, if I told this Marine officer, hey, look, you know, there's going to come a day when those North Korean soldiers are going to turn those AK-47s into tractors. He'd have laughed at me. Hey, have you been around? We've been here for half a century. It hasn't happened. And it didn't happen for Israel right away, did it? You had the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and the Persians. Might get those in back order. And, and, and the Ptolemaic dynasty, and the Romans, and the Nazis. And when's the peace coming? When's the, when will the, the swords be turned into plowshares? When will the spears be turned into pruning hooks? Come on, Isaiah, we've been waiting a long time. Where is the peace? Is it here now? Well, no, and yes, I want you to think about the effect that Jesus Christ has had on the world. Not just the world at this very moment. At this very moment, there are two billion people on the planet. A third of the planet that follows Jesus. But even throughout the history of time, The way that Jesus Christ has changed the course of human history. The way that that people who were violent and vicious and cruel were churned, were transformed into people who were good and decent and generous. The way that violent husbands were turned into good husbands and violent wives turned into good wives and parents transformed into good parents. I want you to think about today, at this very day, that there are people who risk their lives... As, as tourists. You know, when I was going to Africa a, a few weeks ago, you know, going to Nairobi after this big violent thing, people would say to me, like, perhaps you shouldn't go, you know. Maybe it's not such a good idea. Maybe, you know, wait for the next one to come around or something like that. And I thought it was important enough to go. But it was, there was some risk involved. Um, 
probably shouldn't tell you this, but I will, uh, just because I was a little bit nervous about it and realized that I didn't have uh, adequate life insurance, I, I called and set it up and went through the whole physical and everything, and they sent me back a letter saying, I'm sorry, we won't insure you right now because you're traveling to Nairobi. You'd have to take care of Abby and the boys. Anyway, so um, I made it back. There are people right now who risk life and limb to go to Israel to visit to be pilgrims, and they've done it for 2,000 years. They are pilgrimages to Israel. Why? Because they want to see, where did Jesus walk? This man who transformed my life, who transformed our culture, who made such an impact in the world, where did he walk? Because I want to walk those steps too, even if it means I might die doing it. This is what the Crusades were about, to protect the the path of of pilgrimage back to to Jerusalem. Just like Isaiah said, people will come streaming back here and say, teach us the word of the Lord. And they're saying it today in churches all over the world. Teach us the word of the Lord. Let us walk in His ways. Just exactly like Isaiah said would happen. And Jesus Himself, get a little metaphorical on you here, Jesus Himself is the true Israelite. To go to Jesus is to go to Israel. To belong to Jesus is to belong to Israel, according to St. Paul. And so how many people in the course of the last 2,000 years have experienced the very thing that Isaiah said would happen? They learned to turn their instruments of violence into instruments of goodness. Millions, billions of people. And yet there are still the headlines, aren't there? There's still the headlines in the paper. Um, just I uh, picked up the uh, the uh, the Wall Street Journal and um, and noticed that there were uh, headlines like um, China is still guarding its airspace against American air you know warplanes. We had a B-52s that flew into that that space. You, you probably know about that a little bit the other day. This is happening over and over again. There's a a nuclear accord trying to be worked out, which people are worried might lead to nuclear proliferation. It's actually the reverse. An attempt at peace ends up in greater violence. Well, as I was reading the the, the paper this weekend, I came across the back section. um, Peggy Noonan, if anybody ever reads her in the Wall Street Journal, I love her. I mean, she's fantastic, great literature. Um, she's so interesting and, and always right on. And she wrote this column about, um, about how American retailers are um, uh, this year deciding to uh, jump the gun and started their, their holiday sales on Thanksgiving Day. And Peggy was upset about it, and rightly so, that a lot of retailers started at dinner time with their sales. So that people couldn't celebrate Thanksgiving or, or were at least tempted to be involved in commerce instead of giving thanks. And I tracked right along with her. I'm like, oh yeah, you, you tell him, Peggy. Right up to the end. And she says this, oh, I hope people didn't go to the stores, that is. I hope the numbers come in, when the numbers come in, it was a big flop. I hope America stayed home. I agree. I was with her. And happy Thanksgiving to our beloved country. Amen, Peggy. To that great and fabled nation that is still, this day, the hope of the world. And i got to be honest with you. I cringed. No. You see, I love the United States of America. This is my home, my country. A patriot. I love it. I love being an American. 
I don't even sew Canadian flags on my bag when I travel, even though I sometimes think it would be a good idea. Um, I love that we are a great nation, but we are not the hope of the world. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Only Christ can transform hearts. Only Jesus Christ can bring peace where there is violence. Only Jesus Christ would make someone who is turned against God to turn towards Him. And only Christ can make us into the kind of people that God wants us to be. Jesus Christ and He alone is the hope of the world. In the name of the Father and the Son 